are now tuning in to the Mind Body Podcast, where you will go behind the scenes of how the mind of successful entrepreneurs, experts, and true leaders really works. Here you won't just listen, you will understand the guiding principles to create massive change in any area of your life. And of course, this podcast is hosted by the strong, lovely, with the sexy Jewish accent, Lidor Dayan. Welcome to the Mind Body Podcast. My name is Lidor Dayan and I'm your host. I'm super excited to start my podcast by interviewing one of the most humbled, smart, and educated guys out there in the fitness industry. His name is Herrick Holmes. For those of you who don't know who Herrick is, Herrick is a coach, athlete, author, educator, and researcher. For the better part of his career, he's been a coach at 3D Muscle Journey, working with drug-free strength and physique competitors at all levels. A competitive athlete himself, he has pro status with professional natural bodybuilding association and competes with the IPF at the international level as an unoccupied powerlifter. He has a BS in the fitness and wellness and MS in exercise science, a second master in sport nutrition and is a strength and conditioning PhD candidate at AUT in the New Zealand. So take notes because you are going to learn a lot from this guy. How's it going? Good, how about yourself? I'm great. What time is it uh, in New Zealand now? It's a little bit after 8 a.m. And it's Monday, right? Correct. Ah. The future. Okay. (laughs) It's really the future, like almost 24 hours. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Wow, I, I could not believe it, well, like when I just uh, read it, I said, wow, it must be a mistake or something, 19 hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's out of the world now, so. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I, I wanted to, to do like a little bit of uh, questions that I have here, I wrote down uh, everything, I, I really, first of all, I really appreciate your time that uh, you give me like here and uh, to talk with me. And uh, it's really my honor, like to, to really like uh, talk to a person that I really think you are doing an amazing job, and uh, I really uh, thank you for that. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that, and my pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, how did you started your fitness journey? Like, uh, how all of this began? Uh, I started lifting weights in like 2004. Um, at the time, it was just basically like a coping strategy with some stress I had in my life, and then I very quickly fell in love with it. Um, and that started me on the path to eventually competing in powerlifting and then natural bodybuilding, and then I decided I wanted to make a career out of it, so I started pursuing uh, a career as a personal trainer, and then um, there just kept updating my education, and now here I am, you know, I guess 10 years into that, yeah. you know, finishing my PhD. So. That's amazing. And how old are you right now? I'm 33. I'll be 34 in April. Nice. You really look much younger. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, powerlifting competition, it's like when you're doing uh, the deadlift, the squat, and the bench, right? Correct. So, uh, what's your, your records there? Like you did each and every year or uh, you just went one time to compete? Uh, I've done a little over 20 meets, if I recall correctly, my first meet in 2006, and then I've done one to three per year 
since then. Um, and the best squat I've done is uh, 225 kilos or 495 pounds. Wow. Um, best bench press I've done is uh, 147 and a half in competition, which is 325. And then out of competition, I've competed a little bit. But I've focused on my bench. I have done 331. Um, no. Actually, no, I did, I did 331 in competition my last meet. So I did 150 kilos, and I've done about five kilos more than that. So 341, 342, I believe, is my best in the gym. That's, that's um, actually amazing. Like Most people think that if you are too much strong, you must take something. You must take drugs and stuff. So how is it really possible to achieve that kind of strength, that kind of uh, power when you're doing it naturally? Uh, it's just a matter of, of consistency and time, and I mean, I'm I'm very uh, mediocre in powerlifting compared to some of the best drug freelifters. Um, you know, I'm me being at competing either in a 93 or 105 kilo class and benching, you know, 340 pounds is about 100 pounds off what guys at the top level are, are benching. Um, squatting 225 is about uh, about 100 pounds, 100 kilos off of what, what they're benching at the highest level. Um, and then my deadlift of about 550, 555 is, is 200 pounds off what they're, what they're deadlifting at the highest level. Um, so, I mean, a huge part of, of that is that you have to be, you know, like any sport genetically gifted for doing things uh, at, at, at the highest level. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not to say that someone can't uh, get very strong for them. Like, I'm a lot stronger than I was when I started. Um, and a big part of it is that I've been training now for 13 years. So I think consistency, effort, and uh, being smart about your training and, and dedicated more importantly than anything else is key. Yeah, so like keep tracking each and every single week, uh, not uh, getting distracted too much, uh, knowing what you're doing. And form is also one of the key things that you got to master, right? So, uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not only does the, uh, your technique protect you from injury, which means you won't be out for, you know, you're not able to do a lift, mm -hmm. uh, but also the more efficient you can be, the more, uh, timeless your form can be. So you have the ability to, to build a lot of weight on top of it. If you're just muscling through, uh, the lifts with poor form, you're only going to have so high of a strength ceiling. Yes. And, uh, well, yeah. From your professional point of view, uh, what will make people follow through and change their like nutrition and training habits so they can lose uh, the fat and achieve their dream body that they always wanted? Like we're talking about a person that just started his fat loss journey. Mm. Uh, it's it depends on the person. You know, if someone is starting off um, very heavy, very obese, or just completely unfamiliar with a lot of the principles of nutrition and fitness. Uh, it's a matter of taking things a step at a time um, and trying not to do too much all at once and getting getting those basic concepts. If someone is more or less average and, like you said, trying to get a quote-unquote dream body or trying to get uh, to themselves to look like a fitness model, um, and they want to stay that way for their entire life, sometimes it's a matter of uh, having more realistic priorities or more realistic goals and um, shifting their priorities. Uh, I, I meet a lot of people who want to walk around with six-pack abs and 
uh, be shredded all year round, and that's typically not a very healthy thing to try to do. Um, and they often think that that will change their lives in some in some way. That if they go from being average to having a great body, that all of a sudden yes. uh, they'll be better liked, they'll enjoy life, mm-hmm. and all those things. And I think um, I think there's I, I don't really like what some people market like it's amazing once you can get um, yeah. you know a, a great physique like that's going to change everything. And I think. Um, it's important to ask yourself why you want to do what you're doing or why you want to get to where you want to go mm-hmm. um, so that you're more connected to the goal uh, because it's going to get difficult if you're trying to get very, very lean. That may not be very easily sustainable. So you have to have a strong why. Um, and what that means to me is that you should have goals in your life outside of just looking a certain way and then that should just be enhancing that. Um, so... Um, I think so. A know what your what, what where you want to go and why, and have a strong rationale for doing it. Uh, make sure that the goal is realistic and sustainable, and then take incremental steps towards it rather than trying to tackle the entire mountain all at once. And when you're telling saying like a, a little step by step, so for this guy who is just starting, what will be a little step? Because it's not like okay, now track everything from my fitness pal, train three times per week, so. What will be a simple step for this guy so that he can still lose the weight but uh, not do too much? A great starting place is to just start looking at food labels on the nutrition side of things to so start to get an understanding of the energy content and macronutrients that are in foods mm-hmm. uh, and then just start to think about the way that they currently eat. Um, maybe starting a food log instead of trying to track everything in my fitness pal and trying to actually hit targets. Uh, or you know going on a website looking up a certain macronutrients from my height and weight and then trying to follow it every day and getting a food scale just start with becoming aware of what you're eating uh, becoming aware of the energy content of it and just starting to record what you eat this is kind of a basically a habit building um, that's on, on the nutrition side of it on the training side of it um, just getting in the gym at least say once a week is a great start uh, for most people and you know taking maybe base a basic full body approach to Uh, to weight training with only one or two sets per movement and just trying to progress the load without you know, necessarily pushing all the way to failure um, in our moderate rep range on a variety of exercises is a great place to start and just do that until uh, progress becomes difficult and then you can hopefully at that point you will have built a lot more self-efficacy a lot more habits and from there uh, you could start to take a more um, optimized quote-unquote approach if, if you have time and the desire to be in the gym more often and that's when you can continue to upgrade your knowledge yeah yeah that's great and uh, let's see okay let's uh, a little bit about uh, I want to ask about the sup- supplements right so the supplement in- mm-hmm. industry are so big these days so every single week you hear about the Another uh, company that sees out and they have the best protein shake and all of that stuff. So how can you make sure you take the rats the right supplements for you? And uh, there the, the, the is like what would you suggest uh, is a must like if we're talking about supplements, there is some uh, must uh, supplements that you have to take in uh, when you're trying to uh, lose fat or you're trying to gain muscle. Yeah, I think, I think it's really important to remember that the word supplement means in addition to. So yeah, supplements are never a must. Yeah. They're, they're, they're completely unnecessary, um, but they can be helpful in some cases. Uh, unfortunately, like you said, the supplement industry 
is huge, you know, and it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. um, that may be incorrect, but it's a very big industry, yeah. uh, nonetheless, and they're motivated primarily uh, by selling products, not necessarily uh, in all cases, uh, by producing um, very useful products. So I would say probably 95% of supplements are, are only going to make a hole in your wallet rather mm -hmm. than help you. Right. Um, and it's important to educate yourself. So I would recommend anyone listening uh, to check out examine.com, um, which is a great website that has all of the, the studies on humans on a specific supplement. So you can look up the ingredients to what's in your supplements and you can decide whether or not it is something useful for you. Um, and then for those just starting on their fat loss journey or people who are, who are trying to make a change in their life in terms of fitness, um, just making sure that what you're taking makes sense for your goals uh, and remembering that the vast majority are, are not incredibly uh, efficacious. You know, for people who are trying to put on um, muscle, you know, creatine monohydrate is a tried and true supplement. I definitely encourage you to check out the examine.com creatine page and you can see that it's stocked full of good evidence. And that can uh, add a very small, you know, boost as far as your your strength and muscle gain. Uh, for people who are dieting, especially over a long period of time, uh, a multivitamin and essential fish oil, essential fatty acids through fish oil, are, are useful ways to ensure that uh, you're still getting in micronutrients and uh, essential nutrients while you're, you know, restricting your calories. Um, and those are those are big ones, you know. Um, also, you know, caffeine can be helpful, if especially if you're doing a, a variety of fitness tasks that can be a, a bit of a stimulant and can ward off being tired. And that has been also another tried and true supplement like creatine that shows performance enhancement. But those are like the big, the big four, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a few others that are, can be useful depending on your situation. Most people living in uh, westernized countries tend to have uh, vitamin D deficiencies. So we spend all our time indoors and don't get much sunlight. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that isn't a bad idea to supplement with. I think it's estimated in the States and uh, New Zealand, upwards of like 80% of people have a mild vitamin D deficiency. Wow. That's something to look in through. Um, so, uh, yeah, but but outside of that, uh, supplements should be taken for very specific reasons. For example, uh, beta-alanine has, has gotten a lot of attention. Um, and people just kind of, once something gets attention or it's seen as good, they just take it. But they don't think about whether it's relevant to their goal. Mm -hmm. um, and most people taking beta-alanine, or just say doing you know sets of ten and lower, mm -hmm. um, aren't going to get a benefit from it because it doesn't really have much of an impact until you're doing like at least thirty seconds of continuous work or longer. So it probably won't uh, you know be beneficial for uh, so the for power. Strength. It won't be like beneficial. Say again. For so if you're like trying to build strength and four to six repetitions, so it won't be efficient. Correct. Yeah, because you won't be pushing that that yeah. limit of your your endurance, exactly. So, so that, that's a good example of just when you need to be aware of what it is that you're taking and what it does mm -hmm. uh, so that you can assess whether or not it would be beneficial for you or just a waste of money. And when you say like the vitamin D supplements, like if you don't take a vitamin D supplement, so how much time you need to spend like at the sun to have like all the vitamin D that you need? That's a good question and it, it um, it depends. It depends on, on how dark your skin is. It depends on if you're in an area where you can, you know, go on the beach and just wear a swimsuit, or whether it's really cold outside and you're going to walk outside with like a beanie and a long sleeve shirt, a jacket, mm -hmm. and you're getting very little skin exposure. So it's difficult to give a definitive answer to that. Um, 
you know, a good way to kind of be uh, conservative with it is, you know, like a 2,000 IU dose, if you're someone who doesn't get regular sunlight, is kind of a safe bet that you know won't be too much. Um, and if you're someone who lives in an area where you can get plenty of sunlight or shorts and a, a tank top uh, and you get out multiple times per week and spend a decent amount of time, more than an hour uh, in the sun, then you probably don't need to supplement with that. Okay. And about the multivitamin, because it depends on the size of the person, right? Because most supplement companies will tell you uh, you need to take like two to three uh, capsules per day. And this is a small guy, like he's skinny, he's weighing like 130 pounds. So um, how can he know like how much he needs from each? Like he's going to the examine the, the, the site and he check there. I think probably the best way for multivitamins, because examine uh, won't be very helpful for a multivitamin because it has, um, multivitamin has multiple ingredients, so yes. examine's great for looking up singular ingredients. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, in, in most of the time, you need to think of a multivitamin as kind of a safety net. You know, um, if you're in a calorie deficit, it, it might increase your need for it, as it's difficult to get in enough total food to get all the micronutrients. But if you're not in a calorie deficit, you know, it may not be as important, especially if you have a balanced diet with fruits, vegetables, and multiple food sources. Um, but I, I would just advise a basic one-a-day multivitamin um, in most cases, you know. So, um, like, just go, you don't even need to go to a, get any kind of fancy vitamin multivitamin. I think those are, if anything, counterproductive. You know, the ones that yeah. pack with, like, ten different things, or they, they take three horse pills. Uh, but just a basic one-a-day multivitamin um, is, with, with relatively low dosages, like, when you look at it, most of the percentages are 100% or less, mm -hmm. is a good way to go to ensure you're not actually overdosing on anything and, and being counterproductive. Nice, great. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, recently I just posted a, a video, a little parody, parody about uh, eating every two to three hours and now uh, it's uh, irrelevant to like fat loss. So right. what's your, your uh, intake for like if you must eat like two to three hours each and every single day? Uh, is it really necessary for fat loss, uh, or just it's j uh, good for better performance? I think a, a good way to look at meal frequency is that for the most part, it, it comes down to personal preference and adherence. Mm -hmm. um, however, um, in the global population, if you look at everyone, once you get below, say, three meals per day, or you get above six meals a day, it can actually have a negative impact on hunger. You know, if you're eating say twice per day, you have a long period of time where you're not eating. And mm -hmm. that tends to make people a little hungrier than normal. And then Likewise, eat if you're much. eating seven times a day or eight times a day, that means you're eating very small meals constantly. Mm -hmm. So you never really are feeling, feeling satisfied. Um, with that said, some people do great with an intermittent fasting approach yeah. uh, where you know uh, they don't have to think about food if they're distracted. Um, that doesn't work well for everyone, though. In my experience, it's mostly... Uh, younger males, uh, maybe it's just because they're, they're drawn to that uh, that type of marketing that is pretty common with intermittent fasting from Martin Birkin or Gregor Gallagher or mm -hmm. many of the, uh, the guys who put that information out there. Uh, but I've also found that, you know, generally younger males don't wake up hungry, so they're fine with the extended fasting period. A lot of women I've met tend to wake up hungry, and, and, uh, and they do very poorly intermittent fasting. So I think individual results are very important to pay attention to there. You want to follow... Um, you know, a meal strategy, if your primary goal is just fat loss and you're not like a competitive bodybuilder or something like that, um, you want to follow a strategy that basically um, 
you eat when you're hungry and not when you're not, yes. uh, in a simple way. Um, of course, during a diet, you will get hungry no matter what at a certain point. But for the most part, you want to set up a meal schedule that helps you stick with the diet and keep your calories controlled. Um, now, on the other side of it, if your goal is as much muscle gain as possible, um, then you need to think about more than not necessarily the meal frequency, but the protein frequency and the protein dosing. Uh, and there's a fair amount of evidence these days that would suggest that maybe at least three or four, if not four or five, uh, equally spread out um, divisions of your total protein intake for the day mm-hmm. would probably optimize the total amount of time spent building muscle. That doesn't mean you need to, need, need to eat every three hours, but if you think about you know four meals a day uh, and you're awake for 16 hours, it's maybe every four hours trying to get some type of protein bolus, which could be as simple as... You know, if you want to follow an intermittent fasting schedule, that might mean you wake up and you just have a scoop and a half away, and then you have, uh, you know, your a pre-workout scoop away four hours later, and then you have a big dinner and a big before bed uh, meal, and then you're still fine, and you all you've had during your fasting window is, you know, a couple scoops away, which is still going to have a lot of the, uh, the satiety appearance uh, benefits of intermittent fasting if you're someone who who, who feels they benefit from that. Um, while still getting that protein spread. And uh, you talk about a little bit of intermediate fasting, and uh, does BCAA is something that's necessary when you're like in a calorie deficit? And if so, uh, if you take BCAA, it doesn't affect the fasting? Because I read that Jim Stofani said that if you take like BCAA, it's really like uh, you are not fasting. Well, I think the most important thing to remember is that there's no magic from fasting. Um, there's no real benefit to fasting. I mean, the, the intermittent fasting approach is interesting because it just shows you that you can use any type of meal schedule to adhere to and, and still get results if you can stick to it. Um, so there's not an inherent benefit to fasting. Fasted cardio isn't better than unfasted. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, fat loss comes down to net fat loss over the day. You're going to lose a lot of fat during your, your fasting period, and then you're going to gain some fat during your, your feasting period, but the net balance is going to come down to 24-hour calorie intake. So whether or not uh, having a scoop away or BCA takes you out of a fasted state it doesn't really matter. You just want to think about how do you want to spread out your, your yeah. calories and your meals in such a way that you know helps you stick to your plan. Yes. Um, and now as far as BCAA, they're basically just a more expensive version of whey. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, yeah. um, the the latest research and the totality of research is there's been some recent publications show that um, it's not doing anything magic. You know, they're uh, the only study I've ever seen where, where BCA has clearly outperformed um, something else. It was compared to carbohydrate, and it was on people doing running in a fasted state. So. Uh, they, they found that uh, doing a certain amount of cardio, not too much, obviously, or you actually need that carbohydrate, they perform better with, with uh, BCA versus versus uh, glucose. And it may just be that BCA gets you know, utilized a little faster. But on an extended period, that probably would not be the same. Um, uh, if you do the same thing with weight training, you'll there the, the, uh, the RPE of the training might be lower, but your actual performance will be worse. There's a study showing that as well. Um, and you would think that any benefit you get from BCAA, you could get from a scoop, of, a scoop or two of whey, which is mm-hmm. you know pretty high in BCAA. So 
if you have a relatively high protein intake, uh, it doesn't seem to be much of a benefit of taking BCAA, even in a calorie-restricted state. Uh, a recent a review just came out, uh, which which pretty strongly suggests that. So I think BCAA is a pretty overrated supplement for the most part, uh, and especially if you're you're taking a high-protein diet. Maybe if you were a vegan or a vegetarian and you're you know adding it in with some of your meals um, to make sure that your quality was up there, but that's a pretty rare situation. So, like, uh, if a guy is in a deficit and he, uh, they, they say, like, if I'm training fasted, so I will burn muscle. So, I know from studies and stuff that uh, to, to burn muscle, you got to be fast for, like, at least 48 hours or something like that? Um, I think more importantly is whether or not it's, it's put back on. Uh, I, I, don't, I think that's not, that's not really the, the, the best question. I think if... There's only a problem if you're doing intermittent fasting uh, for, say, like 16 hours, uh, which is the standard 16 and 8. Uh, if you're rigidly adhering to it and you're unwilling to have protein during your, your fasting period, I think it would. if your goal is to maintain as much muscle as possible, build as much muscle as possible, and lose fat, there's no benefit to a 16-hour fast. It comes down to 24-hour calorie balance. Um, and I highly doubt that that's... There, you know, your adherence would be negatively affected by having a scoop of whey for for breakfast and a scoop of whey four hours after that in your fasted window. Um, it's pretty easy. You know, you can carry a Quest bar of it with you yeah. if you if you want. Mm -hmm. You don't want to eat a scoop of whey, uh, and it's very low calorie. So if you can but still is it good like to, pattern, to take um, a, the Quest bar? Is like a, a lots of fiber. Will it affect you? Like if you're like training and you have like a little bit of fiber? No, no, I, fiber. Won't, won't negatively affect you. Um, I follow basically kind of a modified intermittent fasting diet myself. I, I just don't get hungry in the morning. So typically my breakfast is a Quest bar, and then I eat a small lunch, and then I eat a very large um, dinner. Exactly. And on days I train, I have a post-workout protein shake. So I'm typically getting, and then I might have protein before fat. So I'm always getting at least four protein servings, but I'm also not forcing myself to eat a large breakfast when I'm not hungry or a large lunch when I'm not hungry. Yeah, it's about like I'm, really uh, knowing yourself, your body, if you're like uh, hungry or not, or not pushing too yeah. much. Yes. Exactly. I think people just need to be aware that um, intermittent fasting is not a rule, you know, like, yeah. um, and that they're, if, if they're making any kind of rigid rules about their meal schedule, they're unnecessary and, uh, and potentially counterproductive. Yeah, it um, just will make them obsessed. So, exactly, yeah. Uh, a little bit about uh, training. Uh, I, like, always been told, like, I, I really loved uh, Ben Pakolsky, if you know him, yeah, this guy. So he always said, like, time under tension, tension is good, like, you need to do, like, uh, three seconds uh, negative, one second, like, when you squeeze. And what uh, is your uh, intake about time under tension? Is, is that really important? I think it's actually highly overrated. Um, and I think um, a lot of, you know, to, to speak specifically about the individual you mentioned, you know, he is promoting a, a workout program, you know, MI40. Yeah. I think it's all I based around it. a certain number. Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, in my opinion, a gimmick. No, no offense yeah. to anyone who follows it or, or believes it. Um, and if you listen to some of the rationale behind it, it's you know rest periods to promote growth hormone, um, time under tension to make sure that the muscle is is, is trained, and, and and some of these things don't necessarily uh, follow what makes sense scientifically. 
Uh, growth hormone is not the reason why we uh, grow. It's actually not, not specifically related to hypertrophy. Uh, and resting longer has been shown to produce better muscle growth because you can then fully recover, do more volume, push heavier weights, and produce more progressive overload. Uh, but specifically on you know time under tension, I do think tension is very important for bodybuilding and, and for muscle growth. Uh, and obviously the time you spend training, which is basically your volume, is very important. Um, but I don't think that specifically ensuring the concentric and eccentric phases of a lift last a certain amount of time is that important. Uh, the most important thing to remember is that the eccentric phase needs to be not uh, controlled by gravity, but controlled by you. So the lowering phase of the lift. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the concentric phase, you want to be trying to lift explosively, okay. not to the point where you're letting inertia uh, take care of the weight for you, uh, but to where you're putting maximal effort in, into the bar. You're going to get higher levels of muscle activation doing that. Um, and the speed of the eccentric uh, is really just going to be determined by your ability to control it. Um, you don't need to go back and slower or faster than normal on an eccentric. Just make sure it's under control so that your muscle is doing the work. Um, when it, when the bar moves faster or slower, uh, that is just going to be dictating how much force you're, you're putting into it, um, and it will make make itself up on the, on, on one side or the other. Uh, there there was a study um, where they had a, a normal tempo compared to a, I believe it was a two-second concentric, four-second eccentric tempo, mm-hmm. and they produced less total work uh, doing the slower tempo. Um, so if you go purposely slow, uh, you are probably actually inhibiting your ability to complete more and more volume. Mm-hmm. Um, a good way to think of it is that it's not just the time under tension that matters, but also the magnitude of tension. So if you were just to use like a... like something extremely light, like a, a remote controller, mm-hmm. and try to lift it very slowly, that wouldn't be very effective training stimulus because you'd have to do a billion reps before you hit failure and actually recruit everything. Um, so if you are having to reduce the weight or reduce the number of repetitions you're doing to get a very slow tempo, um, that'll end up being counterproductive. Uh, however, you do want to make sure that you're not letting a load control itself on the way down and it's just you know gravity pulling it so that you're not actually... Contracting against it on the eccentric, and you do want to ensure that you're not using inertia, uh, you know, and and on the concentric. So in general, it is about the magnitude and the time attention. So mm-hmm. that is your total volume, uh, you know, sets times reps times load for the most part uh, that you need to be paying attention to, and uh, the total amount of work you're doing of, of a certain quality, of course. But uh, you shouldn't be focusing too much on time under tension, especially to the point. Uh, where it uh, reduces the load or reduces the number of reps you're capable of completing. But it's really like depend on what uh, movement are you doing. No, like if I'm doing a deadlift, the eccentric will be like much more rapidly than if I'm doing a bench. I uh, I would say for a powerlifter that's fine. You know, you'll see people commonly just drop a deadlift basically with, mm-hmm. with their hands still attached to it. Yeah. Um, but if you are a physique athlete, um, the deadlift because being performed that way probably isn't the best idea. You want to have some type of control over the eccentric. Even if you are in their fall to sixth repetition? In my opinion, if you're if you're a physique athlete, you want to have control over the eccentric. Okay. Um, if you just drop it, then you do not get you're getting half the volume basically. You're not getting the eccentric volume. Um, I wouldn't advise going to failure on a deadlift anyway at the point where you yeah. can't do uh, a control eccentric. Yeah. 
Another good option for a physique athlete is to do a uh, Romanian deadlift or uh, a step leg deadlift, basically, the same mm -hmm. thing. Uh, I prefer the RDL. And that way, you start with the eccentric, so you know the eccentric is always going to be under control. Yes. Um, but yeah, if you're training for strength, you know, a accelerated, you know, eccentric and lowering it down quickly is totally fine. Uh, um, you may not be getting as much stimulus of total volume, but at the same time, you're also not going to be getting getting a sore because mm -hmm. uh, you're not completing the eccentric at a, a slightly more controlled pace like you would if you were a bodybuilder or a physique athlete. Um, so yeah, I I think the deadlift. Like any exercise, they're all optional if you're a physique athlete. You just want to find exercises that can effectively train the muscle groups, uh, you know, and that you can progress with. So whether you're doing an RDL or whether you're doing a, um, you know, a deadlift off the floor, it doesn't really matter if you're a physique athlete so long as you're performing it correctly and progressing. Uh, and if you have you've struggled to do good form on one, choose the other. And uh, there are so many techniques, right? There is a drop set, super set, rest pause. Yeah, how do you really know what really actually is good? Like, if there is studies, uh, how, might, how can you like uh, say that, okay, this studies is uh, really uh, good enough that I can assure that this technique, the, the technique is good? Like, uh, rest pause. I think that, it's more important. Yes. Go ahead. No, you want to say something? No, you go ahead. No, I said that response has like a really good uh, research behind it, right? And uh, like not like drop sets and supersets and stuff. Uh, I know of maybe one study or one or two studies on the response technique, which is kind of similar to uh, mile reps that uh, Berge Fagerly, um, mm -hmm. or Borch Fagerly, as we Americans call him. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, popularized. Um, it's basically a way of keeping a high level of muscle activation and, and doing more repetitions so that you get more quote-unquote effective reps. Um, but I think it's more important before you're thinking, oh, it's, it's, if you're asking yourself the question, are drop sets good or are drop sets bad? Or is rest pause good or is rest pause bad? Mm -hmm. That's not really a very useful way of thinking. Uh, it's much more important to understand the principles of training and uh, what is producing muscle growth. So if, if you understand that your total volume of training is highly related to the type of growth you're getting and that progressive overload uh, is, is the key element of, of, uh, of training, those things can, can help you decide on your own whether or not it's useful to do rest pause or drop sets, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the thing about drop sets, force reps, partials, rest pause, supersets, not so much supersets, is that it's very difficult to track progress. Yes. Uh, form typically gets worse and worse, and you're focusing on just fatigue, and you're resting very short periods. It's like uh, people doing it just for variety, because they, they get bored. Like, ah, oh, each and every single week, I do the same stuff. So mm -hmm. they want to change with the same stuff. So they use the... Yeah. I think, I think you know, if, if, you're, if you're serious about, you know, getting bigger and, and training hard and, and, and making improvements, that you need to let go a little bit of the shiny object syndrome, you mm -hmm. know, and, yeah. and focus on an efficient way of training. Uh, and for the most part, that means that you're going to be using a good, healthy handful of compound movements, and you're focusing on, you know, progression um, and doing an appropriate amount of volume so that you can progress and only increasing volume when needed, rather than haphazardly, you know, just doing extra rep, uh, yeah. drop sets and supersets and and strip sets and uh, et cetera, and rest pause work. Um, 
And to track progress, you need to be able to actually track it. I think this is very similar to um, if you were eating random foods and, yeah. and had no way to uh, you know, track what you're eating, it would make your diet a lot harder. Uh, the same thing is true of constantly changing up your exercise routine. It makes progress difficult to track. So while there's nothing inherently wrong with doing rest pause or drop sets or uh, strip sets or anything like that, uh, if you're doing it in such a manner that it's very difficult to track your progress, that can be counterproductive. Uh -huh. So I typically, and I don't think they're, they're not special. They don't add any additional benefit. They are just more reps. Um, and you might be doing reps in a fatigue state, so the lighter weights are more effective, but they're not any more effective than just resting and doing, uh, you know, weights that you would normally be able to handle with, with, you know, greater rest. So, um, I don't think they're very useful if your goal is strength. If their goal, if your goal is hypertrophy, then you want to just use, you know, progressive overload and appropriate volume on a variety of exercises, but not such a high variety uh, you never gain skill with the movements. Um, so that's those, those are the, the basic principles of training, and you can apply that to each one of those quote-unquote intensity techniques and decide whether or not they have a place in the program. And how can you really like uh, track your volume, like being really specific, because it depends on your rest, right? Like if you rest a little bit shorter, like five seconds, it, will it affect like all? Yeah, if you rest too short of a period, you will lose repetitions. Uh, which is not something you want to do. Um, I don't think there's any reason to restrict your rest periods unless you just have a limited amount of time in the gym. Mm -hmm. um, you know, rest periods, uh, when you actually rest long enough, then you can perform, which means you can produce volume, which means you'll get a good stimulus for growth. Uh, the times where it can be useful to, to restrict your rest periods um, are maybe if you're doing movements that are not the same muscle groups. It's what's called an antagonist paired yeah. set. Um, so, for example, if you were alternating between sets of a barbell row and a bench press, you know, something like that, or leg extension, leg curl, mm -hmm. or a bicep curl, tricep pushdown, that's a way that you can save time and you could maybe, maybe, maybe rest just as little as one minute after doing one, go to the other, rest one minute, go back to the other, and you can save yourself, you know, a good chunk of time if you are on a restricted schedule and still get in good volume. Um, it's not a very useful technique for heavy compound lifts. That are full body, you know. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that with a back squat or a deadlift, for example. Um, but for you know push pull or isolation movements, it can be very useful as a way of uh, not sacrificing volume, uh, but still you know being uh, efficient with your time in the gym. And would you suggest the same for like women? Because most women like said, oh no, if I lift like uh, four to six reps and heavy lifts, I will get so much big. And I know it. I have good genetics. I always say that, right? So, mm. and uh, so, how, how can you like uh, tell them that it's actually really good for you? Like you, you need to do training. Uh, I think, I think for the most part, it just comes down to education. Uh, one, one, one funny line I used to say when I was a, a personal trainer, when I had a woman who'd be like, "No, I'm really, I don't want to build too much muscle." Is mm -hmm. I go, yeah. I, I told them. You know, ma'am, I've been trying to build too much yeah. muscle for, for eight years. <laughs> man, trying, yeah. if, if you accidentally do it, you know, as, as a female who doesn't even have testosterone support um, within, you know, a few weeks, then maybe we should think about you winning, you know, some bodybuilding <laughs> shows or, or powerlifting meets or becoming an ex-world champion because <laughs> yeah. you've got some amazing genetics. But um, I think helping them understand how muscle gain can, can be useful for their goals is really important, too, not just telling them they're wrong. 
Uh, like if you can tell someone, hey, you know, if we put you in a calorie deficit right, right now without effective weight training, you lose about 60% fat, 40% muscle, and you will kind of get that skinny fat look that you're probably not wanting. Mm-hmm. However, if we put you in a calorie deficit and we do even just two days a week, full body, you know, one set per exercise, we'll probably lose like 90% fat and 10% muscle, and you will get a much more toned, trim body. And I use the words they they want to hear. Yeah. Uh, compared to not doing it at all. Um, and then also I think it's important to know they don't have to do, no one has to do it. Their goal is just muscle retention. You don't have to do heavy lifts. You can you can train in the 8 to 12 rep range only or even 12 to 15 just so long as it's semi-close to failure and more importantly that you're progressing it. Uh, if, you, if they want to do lightweights, if they're for some reason afraid of heavy weights because you'll still get uh, pretty good muscle activation and a similar response if you match the total number of sets if you're doing high reps. So I think it gives a lot more flexibility to people. Um, if they were, you know, a competitive bodybuilder trying to maximize every possible uh, avenue to muscle growth, you probably want to do some heavy training, some light training, and then a lot of moderate load training. But mm-hmm. if they're just someone off the street who wants to change their life, lose some body fat, you have a lot more flexibility where you can still be doing a lot of good that they weren't doing before. Mm-hmm. Great. And the last one is also like really big thing that everybody I think overestimated this is cardio they do too much cardio right so uh, what is a typically ideal uh, cardio session per week I think you know it, it depends a little bit on the body size of the individual mm-hmm. um, so for example if you're a very short or small male or female who's trying to to do a diet um, What? Sorry, you still there, Lidor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second. Okay, cool. So if you're a very small size individual, uh, you often have to be on pretty damn low calories. So it can be useful to do some cardio so that you don't have to have such a low food intake and you can still lose uh, you know, weight at an appropriate pace. So um, typically uh, that might mean doing cardio four days a week, but not incredibly long or exhaustive uh, you know, amounts. Maybe we're talking 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, um, if you're a more, if you're a larger person, or especially if you're very heavy, um, cardio is very much optional. Um, you know, for example, I I'm about 220 pounds right now, and if I was to diet down to get on stage, I'd need to lose about 35, 40 pounds probably. Um, and I would probably start with only two cardio sessions a week at about you know 30, 40 minutes tops. Um, you know, and as far as what type of cardio to do if you're just your average person seeking fitness it truly can be just whatever you enjoy uh, you want it to be something that is uh, something you can do continually sustainable and that you enjoy and that's not a, a pain to do or that you don't hate um, but it's also important to realize that cardio is not nearly as effective as calorie restriction mm-hmm. um, so for example if you remove 500 calories from your diet that's it's gone you know that 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 is a, that the deficit's there there may be some adaptation in your energy expenditure uh, that, that happens, but it won't be a huge amount. If you do, quote-unquote, 500 calories of cardio, and that takes you, let's say, an hour, uh, that hour of you doing something else uh, in that day might have burned 200 calories. Like, let's say you were you know, grocery shopping and then uh, you know, doing some housework. Mm-hmm. You probably burned 200 calories or so doing that. So that means you only burn actually 300 calories more than normal. Uh, also, if you're not tracking... Uh, your food at all, um, you may be someone who tends to eat more when they start to do physical activity, and you can kind of offset the the, the, the cardio you do. 
doing cardio by itself is typically less effective than doing calorie restriction by itself because calorie restriction means that you're probably tracking and you know what your intake is. Um, someone who doesn't really want to deal with that is like, oh, I'm just going to do exercise. Uh, they're probably going to be see, see very ineffective uh, fat loss um, because most people just eat more when they're more active. It takes a lot of physical activity to get to the point where it, it offsets completely your ability to just you know, eat more related to your hunger levels. So um, cardio is a good adjunct or a good supplement to a, uh, a well-set-up diet, but on its own, it's not a very effective tool, uh, although it can be very effective if your goal is just to increase cardiorespiratory fitness. And the eat workouts, like that, does that really speed your metabolism or it's just a myth? Oh, yeah, so, so HIT, uh, high-intensity interval training, uh, where you go hard for you know, mm -hmm. 10 to 30 seconds, and then you rest for oh, 20, sec 20 seconds to a minute or so, depending on the type you're doing. Um, it does end up burning a little more calories uh, than steady state later, uh, but the amount is pretty, pretty small. Mm -hmm. um, the idea here is that you have to go from uh, zero, to, 0 to 60, basically, uh, very low intensity of just not doing anything to very high. And that generates uh, a quote-unquote afterburn, um, where uh, your your energy expenditure I would I wouldn't call it your metabolism. Your energy expenditure is higher for a period of time after training. It's elevated a little bit, but the amount is is quite small. It won't really make much of a functional difference. Um, if you're a competitive bodybuilder or you're someone who's interested in maintaining as much muscle mass as possible while dieting, uh, you do need to think about the modality of cardio. Uh, as the more cardio you do, and if it is like endurance training or you know hard aerobic training, that will directly interfere with weight training adaptations. It doesn't mean it's going to make you backslide. It just makes it harder to progress and adapt to your weight training because you have an quote-unquote interference effect if you were to read studies. Um, but it is totally proportionate to the amount you're doing. If you're doing you know one one hard aerobic sessions a week, it's probably not going to make a difference. But if you're doing daily uh, endurance training uh, that would probably have a negative impact on your ability to maintain muscle and progress in the weight room. So, as a strength athlete or as a bodybuilder, you want to see uh, you you just want to do the amount of cardio you need to progress effectively uh, and not overdo it. Uh, and if you do decide or need to do a fair amount of cardio, then you you want to try to keep the intensity pretty damn low so that's not even endurance training; it's just calorie burning. Um, and, or you want to keep it relatively high and kind of do uh, something like HIT, uh, as long as it's low impact and doesn't interfere with your weight training. Uh, cycling is a good option. Uh, very, very, very lightweight barbell complexes are a good option. Uh, the rower is a good option. Um, things that are don't have much of an eccentric component and things that don't have a lot of impact. Like I wouldn't advise sprinting for, for a, a bodybuilder or a strength athlete because uh, even trained sprinters have a very high occurrence of hamstring strains. So an untrained sprinter, it's even higher. Um, and impact is quite high, and that can definitely interfere with your ability to effectively train legs. Maybe you could go uh, uphill so that you can still push very hard, but there's not that rapid rate of contraction mm -hmm. high impact. Um, but yeah, so that, that's not most people who are bodybuilders, though. So for the most part, you just want to be doing something that you enjoy, and then realize that it doesn't have as huge of an impact um, on you know your your energy expenditure as, as you might think. Okay, and. Uh like if you started a cut and uh, you have a lot to lose, so you have like maybe 16 to 20 weeks to do, uh, is it really important that 
every 12 weeks you do a reset, like go back to main maintenance? Yeah, definitely. A, a diet break uh, or just taking a week off from dieting is a good idea to do on a regular basis. I don't really advise people to do it every four to eight weeks. Um, the way to think of it is that you know you don't change the oil in your car once it's already broken down. Um, but that's the the way people approach dieting. You know, they'll, they'll stick to their diet, stick to their diet, stick to their diet. Eventually, they'll crack and binge, and that's their diet break. It's forced on them. It's not a choice. However, if you take a diet break every month or two at the point in which uh, the diet started to get a little stressful, but you've still got a good handle on it, you've essentially kind of reset um, your your ability to sustain it and adhere to it. And there's also some potential benefits as far as maintaining your, your total energy expenditure for the day um, and uh, refilling glycogen, improving performance, and hopefully maintaining more muscle over time. Um, so, yeah, I typically recommend taking a week at roughly maintenance calories every four to eight weeks on the diet. Uh, if you are someone who is dieting for a deadline, no, that does mean you have to plan for a little bit, a little bit extra time. But typically a... Um, a longer, slower diet preserves more muscle mass, preserves more sanity, yeah. uh, and preserves more performance than a crash diet, a fast, severe diet. And reverse diet is something that's necessary? Because they say, like, your metabolism goes low once you're, like, uh, starting a diet, and if you're, like, your maintenance was, like, 2,400, now you are, like, about 1,600, so you can't go... Uh, too much on calories because this way you will gain a lot of fat, right? Uh, the only way you're going to gain fat is if you go directly into a surplus after a diet. Uh, it is true that you will probably have a lower um, maintenance calorie intake level after dieting. Uh, so, for example, if you lose you know 20 pounds and you've been dieting for 20 weeks, uh, not only will you burn less calories because you weigh 20 pounds less and you're moving less weight around, but there will also be what's called adaptive thermogenesis, which mm -hmm. just means that you now burn less calories than you would expect for your body size. Um, and that does get reversed with increasing calories and putting on some body fat and regaining any lean body mass. Each one of those factors uh, probably plays a role. Um, so the best way to make sure that that gets reversed as quickly as possible is to get your calories as high as possible, but not to the point where you're gaining you know, body fat. So it's okay so, like to put more back on 400 or 500 if it's, that's your maintenance? Yeah, so long as you're not going past your maintenance. Uh, then again, in some cases, you do want to gain body fat right after a diet. Uh, like if you're a competitive physique athlete, you've gotten extremely lean. And the only reason to try to stay that lean is if you have more shows. It's a, you know, an unhealthy level of body fat to get to. It's counterproductive for gaining muscle. Uh, you know, you're, you're probably not sleeping well and your probably libido is probably in the toilet. Uh, so, for example, after I've dieted down to, you know, 4 to 6% body fat, my goal is to get back to say eight to ten percent body fat pretty fast. So I'll put myself in a large surplus. So the largest calorie jump I'll make is immediately post show. And you won't uh, binge there in this? Like you when you start to hit? Especially uh, carbs, you're like you're, you're in, the, in the in the hundreds of people we've worked with, we find it's much more common for people to binge when they're told they can only increase their calories a very small amount and they stay in a deficit after the diet. Because now they don't have a uh, show to aim at. So it's either, okay, you can only have 15 more grams of carbohydrate even though you're still in a deficit, or here's 250 more grams of carbohydrate, 30 grams more fat, and cut your, your cardio in half. Then you're much, much, much less likely to binge because you have so much more food to eat anyway. Mm -hmm.
So, you know, with our competitors, after a, a long six-month-plus diet, and they've lost, you know, 15 to 30 pounds in most cases, um, we put them in the largest surplus right after the, the diet because they're going to have a drive to binge anyway. So instead of letting that take them over, we give them the calories, you know. So instead of them eating 6,000 calories, they're eating, you know, 3,500, 3,800 and still being in a moderate surplus. Uh, and they're not they, – they don't gain too much fat. And then within – you know, a few weeks, uh, they're feeling remarkably better. Instead of staying in a deficit and slowly walking it up or being just barely at maintenance and being starving and then binging multiple times per week uh, and end up gaining fat and hating it. Uh, so I think you just need to, like, the, the way that anorexics uh, are, are treated um, is that they are given an enforced calorie surplus. And many of the symptoms go away once they've added body fat back on. So the desire to binge is driven by the fact that you're so lean and that you've been restricted. Mm -hmm. So getting yourself less lean and restricting yourself less is the solution to that, not trying to stay restricted even longer in a, a extreme reverse dieting approach. That's almost always sets people up for failure. And nine out of 10 cases that I've seen, people have tried to slowly, slowly, slowly add calories after a hard diet. I'm talking about competitive athletes here, bodybuilders who have very high willpower fail. And they they binge multiple times and hate themselves for it. Yeah, yeah, it's so now, hard. I, I tried myself. Like ah, I can. <laughs> You're like one to yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult, you know. So it also doesn't make a lot of sense physiologically. Um, the idea of build, building metabolic capacity or building your your uh, a higher level, higher metabolism by by slowly adding food doesn't make a lot of sense because a lot of the reasons why your energy expenditure decreased is because because you lost fat mass, you lost muscle mass because your calories are low. So increasing your calorie output requires you to put some of that fat back on, requires you to regain muscle, and requires you to uh, increase calories. So if you don't do that uh, in a controlled fashion, of course, we're not talking about just getting as fat as possible, um, then, then you're not going to see much of an increase in energy expenditure. Or you will, but it'll take six to eight months of slowly increasing calories that uh, really wasn't necessary. Um, now, for everyone who's listening who's not a physique competitor, you're probably not dieting nearly to that level of leanness. If you're just dieting to, say, you know, 8 to 12% body fat for a male or the mid to low 20% for a female, then you can just go right back to maintenance and try to sustain that new level of fat loss you have. There's no need to even be concerned about uh, the concept of reverse dieting. Great. Good. Uh, let's stop. Where is Eric in the next five years? That's the personal huh. Great question. Um, well, let's see. Uh, in the next five months, hopefully, I will huh. have completed my, my PhD. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll be officially graduating in December, as it stands now, and probably defending my thesis sometime in the mid-year. Um, so I'll be finishing with my schooling, which will be wonderful. Um, and I'm doing a few things that I think are pretty cool. I'm starting up a uh, research review called MASS, which is Monthly Applications in Strength Sport, with uh, Greg Knuckles and Mike Zerdo. So we're going to have a, uh, a research review specifically uh, targeted at reviewing research and helping bodybuilders, powerlifters, Olympic lifters, that type of nice. uh, audience uh, to learn how to, how to interpret and use research findings. Um, we're going to have a 3DMJ uh, conference in Melbourne in, uh, in June, uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, I'll be speaking in um, Ireland and London 
in July, uh, and then potentially going to IPF Worlds with uh, Bryce Lewis, my colleague and athlete who I've been coaching for a long time. He just uh, qualified on the U.S. team to compete in the 105s, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all this year. Long term, I plan to keep putting out good content. Um, I will be eventually competing myself again um, mm-hmm. in uh, natural bodybuilding and of course powerlifting after I finish my, my PhD. Um, hopefully, making my pro debut, and uh, um, I will be write, writing a second edition of the Muscle and Strength Pyramid uh, eBooks with Andy Morgan and Andrew Valdez. Uh, and just helping the, the community grow and learn. That's that's my goal. It's great, man. Really pounding on you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so my my motto in all of the things I, I do is like leave a legacy. So what legacy do you want to be remembered for? Uh, I would like to be remembered for helping people get empowered in their knowledge so that they uh, are not... Slaves to the opinions of gurus, but rather they can make educated informed uh, opinions or, or sorry decisions um, in their own journey in life and uh, Become educated consumers of fitness, fitness information. That's mm-hmm. that's my goal. That if I had a legacy That would be a good one. Yeah, it is man Good. I'm really happy and I really want to take you from the bottom of my heart for the time that you you gave me and I really wish you all the best, man. All right, you too. Have a good one. Bye. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this interview or any other one from the Mind Body Podcast, feel free to subscribe to my podcast at iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and at my YouTube channel. Also, feel free to share this podcast on Instagram by tagging the Mind Body Podcast. Do you want to be a part of the Mind Body podcast? So remember the fast factor. The fast factor stands for one, Facebook. Become a part of the Mind Body podcast community by joining our Facebook community just by searching on Facebook the Mind Body podcast community. Number two, act. Don't just be a passive listener. Act upon what you've just learned by applying one simple thing from any episode or interview. Three, subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or if you're visual like me, then just search the Mind Body Podcast on YouTube. And number four, train others. Because just like I always says, leaders create leaders and you're all here to grow together and by training others, you're training yourself. So this is the fast factor. Remember it. Facebook, act, subscribe and train others. Oh, and please feel free to leave a review which will engage all your VAC senses. And the VAC senses stands for visual, auditory and kinesthetic. Which, when you use all the three combined, you remember stuff much better. For more information about my coaching, public speaking, and taking your mind and body to all new levels, check my site at lidodayan.com. Till then, never, ever forget to smile. See you soon.